0: 2020 will not be an easy year, am I right? Not that recent years have been a walk in the park, or centuries if you're not among the privileged. This is the fourth sermon I've given in the Trump era, and Lordy, let it be the last. (laughs) The first one in January 2017 was about living in a post-truth world where the President of the United States claimed control over reality. He said things like climate change is a Chinese hoax and the Russians didn't hack our election. And some of us felt like Alice in hell. I still do, do you? Let me get one thing right out of the way right now. I'm not going to talk about Trump. Of course, I think he shouldn't be impeached and removed, but whether he stays or goes, the systems that put him in power and that have kept people down for decades will still be there. That's what I'm talking about today those systems, about changing those systems and what we have to change in ourselves. And I don't mean wringing our hands and making snarky comments on Facebook. Three years in and we're going to have to be more purposeful than ever to maintain our sanity, our grip on reality, our courage and our compassion especially if we wish to do so in a manner consistent with our moral principles, with integrity in other words, which is our theme for the month of January. Integrity means the quality of being honest or having strong moral principles. Put another way, a person with integrity takes responsibility for their actions, is honest and reliable, and puts others' needs above their own. So in addition to honesty and trustworthiness, integrity implies a little extra soupçon of selflessness, where charitable people put their own needs aside to serve others less fortunate than they, often entire communities like the poor. Someone with true integrity is only interested in doing the right thing, says Oprah, and we understand that it will come at some cost to ourselves. A righteous cost, but a cost nonetheless. This frame has the virtue of simplicity. A person with integrity is selfless, altruistic, ever the good guy. And the opposite is a selfish person, bad to the bone. We call them greedy, rapacious, grasping, money hungry, or God forbid, power hungry. And yeah, there are more than a few of those folks in evidence Our rapacious, grasping president among them. I invite you to consider a third option, self-interest, which, properly understood, can be our guide. Neither selfish nor selfless, self-interest is a relational construct that points to our place in the interdependent web of all existence. It's a correlation to the mistake we all make in thinking we're separate from each other and from the rest of the natural world. And it's perfectly consistent with behaving with integrity. Enough about integrity, let's talk about me. I'm the director of a grassroots group of more than 2,200 regular people, including many of you, who want government to work for all of us. Three years ago, we were the resistance But now we and millions of others are standing up for justice in much bigger and broader ways. Because regardless of who wins in November, no one is going to do anything for our community unless we have the power to demand it. That's what we're doing. Building independent political power, yes, power, so we can create the world we want. For the longest time I thought I did this because I cared. Because I wanted to help people. There are a few problems with this, though. It's not enough to keep a person going. You get tired and beat up. And if you don't have a stake in the game, you can just take your marbles and blow. Also, it ain't right. When we talk about helping people, we're assuming roles in a hierarchy where some people, the privileged, have more to give than others, the underprivileged. This strips vulnerable people of the agency to fight for what they need. And it denies everyone the stake that we all have in this fight. Lila Watson, a Gangulu artist, activist, and academic from the country that calls itself Australia puts it this way, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. That's what I mean by self-interest. I do what I do, not just because I care, I don't just care about an abstract bunch of people separate from myself, but because I recognize my own self-interest in a just world. My liberation is bound up with that of everyone, and so is yours. Let me tell you a story. When I was nine or 10 in 1959, my mother bought the one and only house she would ever own a small, one-story clapboard in Plymouth, Michigan, more or less directly across the street from the apartment we'd lived in for several years. She was a single mom, a schoolteacher, already 50 years old, and she managed the move on a shoestring, hiring a couple of guys with hand trucks to ferry our stuff across the street. I was in the old apartment, vacuuming up kitty litter, when one of the guys, his name was Buck, molested me. He put his hands up my little seersucker shorts and his tongue down my throat, and I can still remember the way he smelled and how he trembled. Then Buck said, you won't tell anyone, will you? And being a compliant 50s kind of gal, I said no. But I did walk across the street to find my mother who was scrubbing out our new pink bathrobe, uh, bathtub she was annoyed that I was slacking while she was working hard. So I finally had to squeak out the words, Buck kissed me. Next thing I knew, somebody picked me up. Then I spent the rest of the afternoon at a friend's house. Mom must have made a call. At the end of moving day, when Buck and his partner were gone and my mother and I were sitting in our new kitchen surrounded by boxes of stuff, she said, I gave him a good strong look. I didn't want to embarrass him in front of his partner. Okay, takeaways. Sexual abuse is all too common. This has happened to virtually every female I know. My mom did get me out of there. And three, both of us prioritized some guy's feelings over mine. I nursed a bitter resentment about this for years. Some aimed at Buck. I was, I was worried I would run into him again. I was worried about seeing his car on my street. But mostly toward my mother for not standing up for me. I wished she had grabbed one of those kitchen knives and slit his throat, or at the very least fired his ass on the spot. But she didn't do any of that, why? I don't know for sure, but I can speculate that she felt isolated and afraid. I'm certain she was anxious about money and about getting the move finished on her meager budget. Also, it was 1959 and the water we swam in was patriarchy. My mother was born in 1910 before women even had the right to vote. And although she was college educated and a powerhouse in her own, own right, my mother helped write the original Social Security Administration language, and she was the first American journalist to interview Ho Chi Minh. Even then, it was bred in her bones to defer to men, never to confront them, never to be mad at them in public, never to embarrass or shame them but instead to absorb the tension into herself like a mop. Unpacking this story has been transformational for me. For one thing, although to my everlasting regret, it didn't happen until she was gone. It changed my relationship with my mother. Since I know she loved me, and there's nothing I can do to change what happened, I've had to accept that she did the best she could. Secondly, it showed me that my commitment to justice was more than skin deep. I could see that just as my mother was a creature of her time, I was too. And I began to peel the layers of the story I grew up in. White suburban America in the 50s and early 60s where men knew best and ran things. And owning a big gas-guzzling car with fins was the pinnacle of success. And that as a girl, my feelings, my intellect, my body, my words were of no importance whatsoever except as in service to men. For sure, my mother did some damage that day. But the story we lived in caused far, far more damage to her, to me, to women and girls everywhere, and to men as well. For the price of being on top is the denial of feelings. You can see how that goes full circle. When inexpressible feelings Inexpressible feelings of anger and sadness and fear and shame have to get expressed somehow, and they get expressed as sexual violence, which is power over women, who men are taught are are weak and less valuable. Patriarchy harms everyone everyone who is not in power, even the likes of Buck. I can't presume to know what it's black or brown, what it's like to be black or brown or trans, say. I am inarguably a person of tremendous privilege, blessed with an education, indoor plumbing, and a reasonable expectation of being able to walk around through the day without getting shot but I have a handle on what it's like to be marginalized and a vision of what it's like when people aren't marginalized, but seen and respected for their full, powerful, beautiful selves. That vision is what motivates me. Those old stories, we're starting to see them for what they are. Not bedrock truth, but paradigms based on certain assumptions about power. They are designed to privilege the very few and keep the rest of us down. Do you or anyone you know struggle to pay for pharmaceutical drugs? Right here in Berks County, people are literally dying for lack of meds and others are planning suicide so as not to bankrupt their families. I have met them at the door. I want a world where people can get the healthcare they need. Do you or anyone you know work two or three jobs and still live in poverty? Conversely, do you work for a big corporation whose one and only priority is shareholder value, so-called? I want a world where jobs pay a living wage and the economy works for the common good. Do you or anyone you know live in fear of ICE locking up your nine-year-old, six-year-old, six-year-old daughter for 193 days? There's a girl, her name is Maddie, she's six years old. She's been in Leesport for 193 days today. Or police shaking down your partner at a traffic stop because he's black. Or a gunman shooting up your church. I want a welcoming world where love and generosity prevail. Do you have grandchildren or children who need an education and healthy food and a clean, viable environment to grow up? Do you have girls? Do you have boys? Are you human? Of course you are. Therefore, you have an interest in doing the right thing. The old stories of conquest and rugged individualism that guided us in the past, that guided our parents and grandparents, these stories are falling apart. We live in a time of tremendous upheaval, but within that turmoil lie the seeds of tremendous change. We have the power to change the world we live in for the better. Ursula Le Guin said in 2014, we live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable, but so did the divine right of kings. Capitalism is a story, a system. So is patriarchy, so is white supremacy. These old stories, or rather, the people who benefit from them, the people who benefit from remaining in power and keeping the rest of us down, They want us to keep believing in those stories and they issue no end of bribes. Free shipping, cheap energy, really, really nice cars with no fins. But those stories are becoming less and less effective as we personally, intimately experience oppression. A fish doesn't know what water feels like, but because we live in a time of crisis, the climate crisis, the crisis of democracy, you name it. We humans have the rare opportunity to see the nuts and bolts that hold together the story we live in. In ways that would have been shocking just a few years ago, teenagers and major news outlets and even presidential candidates are calling out oppressive systems by name and reminding us that their power is not inescapable. I'm mad as hell about how broken our systems are and I hope you are too. I'm also scared. But anger is only motivating for so long and fear, honestly, fear does not work at all. Right now, in this precious space between the story we live in and the story we're in the process of creating, what's gonna get you to stand up and keep on standing? I urge you to consider an expansive, inclusive, transformative kind of self-interest. There's a fellow named Charles Eisenstein. He's a gift economy advocate. He calls this love, where the boundaries of self expand to include another human being. Like when you love someone, how they are is vital to how you feel. Love may be a more gracious way to think about it, but I think self-interest is super empowering. I urge you to consider the possibility that your health, your well-being, your very survival is inseparable from that of others. What used to be outside of us and separate, people without health care say, is not separate anymore. What this means is we don't have to put others' needs above ours to do the right thing. We are the people living in fear. We are those people working harder and harder for less. I'm not saying that personal trauma is a prerequisite. It most certainly is not. But we are those people living on a planet that's on fire and whose young people who are at this very moment being sent to fight another pointless war. Our liberation is bound together. Sure, 2020 is going to be wild, but don't be afraid to stand up. You must stand up. It's not an option to retire. You are the damn givers, as John Pavlovitz puts it. And that makes you perfect for such a time as this. You are among the vast majority of Americans who are building a better world. A world where government works for all of us, including the most vulnerable, and where one malignant narcissist can't unilaterally start a war. A world with economic and climate justice, where jobs pay a living wage, and entire continents aren't committing climate suicide. A world with racial justice where we put an end to 400 years of racism that started with slavery in Virginia in 1619 and continues to this day with mass incarceration. A world with gender justice where nine-year-old girls aren't molested with impunity. And 207 legislators, including Senator Toomey and Congressman Muser, don't ask the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's not left or right or Democrat or Republican. It's what most people want. You are not alone. We are each other's harvest, wrote the poet Gwendolyn Brooks. We are each other's business. We are each other's magnitude and bond. Now go out and do the right thing. Stand up for the world we want may it be so. Thank you for joining us this week. If you'd like a copy of the transcript of this sermon, you can